It's good to be with you again this evening, and I'm glad that we can spend some time uh, in worship again today and studying God's Word together. Before we begin, I do want to take just a moment. I know that uh, so many of us were um, shocked, I suppose is the right word, to hear about Brother John Moore's events this morning and because I know that uh, so many here know him and appreciate him and his family I'd like for us to stop and pause for a word of prayer on his behalf and on his family's behalf and then we'll enter into our period of question and answer pray with me please our great and loving father in heaven we come before your throne of grace this evening and we are so thankful that we have the ability to approach you and to call you our Father. We're thankful that you hear us and that you care for us. We're thankful that we have a Savior who is our compassionate high priest, who knows what it's like to, uh, to walk in the footsteps of humanity and to suffer and to uh, have heartbreak and sorrow. Father, we are mindful now of Brother John Moore and his health condition, and we ask that you would be with him and bless him and all of those who are taking care of him. We pray that he'll be able to recover and that he'll be able to recover quickly. We ask that you would be with his family and bless them as well. And with all of those uh, who are close to him, we ask that your blessings would be upon them. We're thankful for all of the great work that he's done in the kingdom throughout the years, both here and, and in Dripping Springs and in other places throughout the world. And we pray that you would continue to bless him with many years to, to continue doing that work. And we pray that that work will continue to bear fruit for many, many years to come. Thank you, Father, for loving us and for blessing us so richly. Thank you for your son who died for us. And we pray through his name. Amen. We only have three questions this evening, so I think perhaps we'll be able to get through these somewhat quickly which may be good because the chicken deacon has been dropping some hints lately about the length of my sermons. So perhaps, perhaps it would be good for us to finish in a timely manner. Three questions. Number one, this question comes from Hebrews chapter 1. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, Hebrews chapter 1. And the question is based on verse 14. And the question is this, does Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 teach that angels are active now in Christians' lives? Does Hebrews 1.14 teach that angels are active now in Christians' lives? Let's read the passage together. We really need to read it along with verse 13, so let's begin with verse 13 and read verse 13 and 14. The writer says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So let's look at this passage and note three things about it. First and most importantly, any time we're looking at a passage of Scripture and seeking to ascertain its meaning, we have to consider the context in which it's found. And as we're well aware, because of how we've, uh, the time we've spent studying Hebrews over the last few months... This is the context in which the writer is showing the superiority of Jesus to angels. 
He has listed a number of reasons up to the point of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And when he gets to this point in Hebrews chapter 1, he is actually revisiting a point that he introduced up in verse 6 and verse 7. What he does in verse 13 is he quotes Psalm 110 and verse 1. And the point that he's making in verse 13 is that Jesus reigns on the throne. The question is, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? That's a reference to Jesus sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven until I make your enemies your footstool. That's a reference to defeating or conquering his enemies. So it's an obvious reference to the Son of God and his, uh, the fact that he rules as king. And then there's a contrast with verse 14. Jesus reigns on the throne, verse 13, but the angels, they serve, verse 14. And you could even say Jesus sits on the throne, but the angels serve around or under the throne. That's the contrast that's being given. Now look, look closely at exactly what the Hebrews writer says in verse 14 about angels. He says they are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. The word ministering or minister, of course, has to do with serving or service. Those who will inherit salvation, of course, has to do with Christians. In the context of what's going on in Hebrews 1 and 2, inheriting salvation, the great salvation. You remember Hebrews 2, 1 to 4? He's talking about the great salvation that Jesus came and brought. So those who would inherit salvation are Christians. So the point is that angels are ministering spirit who are sent forth to minister or serve for those who will inherit salvation, that is, for Christians. Now this is a passage that I like to, I like to do this in my Bible you could write the word what next to this passage, W-H-A-T, and the reason is because the Hebrews writer only tells us what they do, but he doesn't tell us how. What we know about angels is that they are described as ministering spirits, spirits who carry out the will of their creator. Isaiah 6 verse 2 tells us that they worship God, Revelation 22, verse 8 and 9, the angel in speaking to John described himself as a fellow servant with John. So the angels are servants of God who worship and serve the Creator. Now this passage says that they are sent forth to minister or to serve for those who will inherit salvation, that's Christians. It only says that they're ministering spirits sent from God. It tells us what, but it doesn't tell us how. And so, unfortunately, there's really not a whole lot more that can be said about it. We have to take this passage for exactly what it says and be careful not to add anything more to it than what it's actually saying, keeping in mind where it sits in its context, which is to show that Jesus sits on the throne, but the angels, they serve under it or they serve around it. So I would not say that this passage teaches that angels are now active in a Christian's life. And the reason is because that's not what the passage says. All the passage says is that they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation, which is Christians. And we shouldn't take it any further than that because that's all that the passage says. Here's question number two. 
This is a good question. The question is, when we come together on a Wednesday night, is this considered to be worship? That's a great question. Let's talk about that for a little bit. I want to direct your attention to the Old Testament first, and we're going to look at a couple of passages briefly in the book of Genesis and then one in Second Chronicles. And the reason that I want us to look at these passages is because, first of all, I'd like for us to note the fact that worship is defined by action and not by time and not even necessarily by location. Worship is defined by action. You remember some of these passages, I'm sure, like Genesis chapter 22 and verse 5. God has spoken to Abraham and God has said to Abraham, I want you to go and I want you to offer Isaac on the altar. And as Abraham and Isaac are on their journey, they pass by some. And here's what Abraham says in Genesis 22 and verse number 5. He says, he says I am the lad. We are going yonder to worship. Reminds me, the other day we were driving down the street and I was pointing out Christmas lights and I said, look over yonder. And Jonah said, Dad, what's yonder? Abraham said, we're going yonder, we're going over there, and what are we going to do? We're going to worship. The language implies that there is a beginning point and there is an ending point to that action. Worship is defined by action. Same thing happens again in Genesis chapter 24 and verse number 52. The scripture says that it came to pass, Genesis 24, 52, when Abraham's servant heard their words that he worshiped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. He heard their words and then he did what? And then he worshiped. Again, worship is defined by action. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse number 3. This is on the occasion of Solomon dedicating the temple. And the passage says, When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement, and they worshipped. And they praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. So this is just a small sampling of passages, again, that will indicate to us that worship is an action that has a beginning point and that it has an ending point. Now, in the Old Testament, sorry, let me back up. The actions of worship are identified for us in different ways or different actions of worship, I should say, are, identif are identified for us in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we read about things like sacrifices, uh, offerings, prayers to God, praise to God and, and many other things, some of which we've seen in the passages that we've read, these would be described as actions of worship. In the New Testament, though, we have five actions of worship, and you probably know them, and probably even our children know them, or at least I hope that they do. Those actions are singing, praying, preaching, partaking of the Lord's Supper, and then giving of our means. Now, here's a very important point to notice about these five actions of worship in the New Testament. These five actions of worship may be done at any time and in any place with the exception of two. And that is the observance of the Lord's Supper and the contribution or the giving of our means. And the reason is because we have passages that regulate the time and occasion of those two actions of worship. In Acts 20 and verse number 7, we have a reference to the Lord's Supper being observed on the first day of the week. 
We recognize Bible authority and how the Bible authorizes by either uh, implication or by direct command, explicit command. And as we look at a passage like Acts 20 and verse 7, what we find is the pattern or the example of the early church gathering together every first day of the week for the purpose of partaking of the Lord's Supper, for worshiping God. And so by implication, then, that tells me that I am authorized, we are authorized to partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week and only on the first day of the week, just as the church did in the first century. But the same thing can be said for the contribution. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul commanded the church in Corinth in 1 Thessalonians 16, verses 1 and 2, that whenever they were gathered on for their Lord's Day worship, that they were to give of their means, that they were to partake of the collection, that those monies were to be offered into the storehouse or into the treasury, he said, so that there be no gatherings when I come. Now, there are several things that should be gleaned from that. First of all, it should be gleaned that just like Acts 20 and verse number 7 authorizes by way of implication that the Lord's Supper is to be partaken of on the first day of the week, so 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1 and 2 also authorizes by implication letting us know that the only appropriate time for us to observe the collection or the contribution of the saints as the church is gathered as an action of our worship is on the first day of the week. Another thing that should be gleaned from 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2, is the question of how the church is to meet or fulfill its obligations. The church had needs at that time and in that place that needed to be met, and Paul's command for meeting those needs was that when the church was gathered to worship on Sunday, they were to, give, uh, they were to take up a contribution in order to meet them. And so in the same way, we have needs and we're commanded to meet on the first day of every week. And so we are commanded to meet the needs of the church today in the same way that they were commanded to meet the needs of the church in the first century. So we have five actions of worship and three of those actions of worship, singing, praying, and preaching, those actions may be observed at any time and in any place But the partaking of the Lord's Supper and the giving of our means, those two actions of worship are reserved only for what we would call our corporate worship. And by corporate, we're only talking about the coming together of the body of Christ on Sunday, the first day of the week worship that God has commanded in which all of the church is gathered together and worships together in spirit and in truth. The Lord's Supper and the collection are reserved for those worship times, uh, those worship times only. You'd also look at uh, at First Corinthians chapter eleven, for, uh, excuse me, chapter eleven and following through really chapter number sixteen, verse one and two. So uh, worship is defined by action and not by not by time. That means that actions of worship can be observed at any time and in any place, with the exception of the Lord's Supper and with uh, taking up of the contribution. So that tells me that when we gather together on Wednesday evening, although it is not the first day of the week, it is not the Lord's Day assembly in which we have corporate worship as we're commanded and we partake of the Lord's Supper and we give of our means, it is still 
we are still rather engaging in actions of worship because we're singing and we are praying and we are uh, teaching and preaching God's word and those things are actions of worship. And by the way, they all must be done in accordance with the authority of God, whether it's on Sunday or Wednesday or whether we're talking about a devotional at our home or whatever the case may be. Whenever we're going to engage in an action of worship, then those actions have to be, uh, have to be uh, authorized and have to be uh, in, in line with what the Bible teaches as far as what God authorizes for our worship. That's a little bit of a long answer, but hopefully uh, it gets to the point of the question. Here's question number three, our last question. It's based on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. If you'd like to turn your Bibles there, 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15. And the question is, how can the Old Testament make us wise unto salvation? You're probably familiar with this passage. The Apostle Paul, in exhorting this young preacher, Timothy, has this to say. He says, but you must continue in the things which you have learned... And been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now when Paul talks about the holy scriptures that Timothy had known from childhood, obviously he's not talking about the New Testament because the New Testament was still in the process of being written at the time of the writing. So therefore, the only thing left is the Old Testament. And he is saying that the Old Testament has the ability to make us wise unto salvation even today. So how is that possible? What does that mean? Well, you remember Romans 15 and verse 4, where the Bible tells us that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. And we learn a lot about salvation, about the plan of salvation. We learn a lot about the scheme of redemption as it is described as we study the Old Testament. And believe it or not, the New Testament actually is what puts the exclamation part, point on all of that and really brings it to our attention. Like in Luke chapter 24, for example, verse 25 through 27. In Luke 24, verse 25 through 7, we find Jesus with some disciples on the road to Emmaus. And you remember the conversation that transpires between Jesus and these disciples. And he's asking them some questions about what's been going on. And they say, basically, where have you been? How do you not know about Jesus and about everything that's happened? And the Bible tells us that from that moment, their eyes became open and that Jesus began to expound unto them all the things that were written about him from the law and from the Psalms and from the prophets. The law and the Psalms and the prophets is the Jewish designation for the entirety of the Old Testament. So what that passage means is that Jesus walked them through from beginning to end of the Old Testament all of what the Old Testament taught concerning him. What do you suppose the Old Testament teaches concerning him? In Revelation 19, verse 10, the scripture says that the spirit of pro the testimony of Jesus, I get that backwards every time, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I probably just got it backwards just now. It's either the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy or the other way around. You look at it and you'll see it for yourself. But the point, again, of the passage is that as we study Old Testament prophecy, the heart of that is Christ Jesus. 
Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 to 25, that the Old Testament law served two purposes. Number one, it was to identify sin, but number two, it was to be our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So when we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the Old Testament scriptures, we learn a great deal about salvation. We learn about the need for salvation because we read and learn about the entrance of sin into the world in Genesis chapter 3. We learn about uh, concepts like holiness and like purity and like uh, sanctification in the book of Leviticus. We see prophecies about the coming of the kingdom, the church, in Isaiah and Daniel and Joel. We see prophecies about the Messiah and about the need for a Savior in places like Isaiah chapter 53. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies about Christ and his work and his kingdom are found in the Old Testament. And of course, Christ has fulfilled, Christ has fulfilled them all. So as we look at the Bible as a whole, the story of the Bible, as we often refer to it, the Old Testament plays a pivotal role in this Uh, in the overall theme and framework of the Bible because it tells us about why man needed to be saved in the first place. It then chronicles for us, beginning in Genesis 3 and verse number 15, the first messianic prophecy, it chronicles for us this plan that God had in his mind from eternity, Ephesians 3, 9 to 11, and how he began to make that known one small point at a time throughout the pages of human history beginning in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. That plan unfolds throughout the entirety of the Old Testament and it reaches its climax in the New Testament when Jesus is born into the world and dies on the cross, raises from the grave, ascends to heaven, and then establishes his church. All of those things are fulfillments of what the Old Testament told us all along was on its way. So that is how the Old Testament can make us wise unto salvation. Well, those are our three questions, and I do appreciate you submitting them. As I tell you every time, I enjoy doing this, and uh, your questions challenge me, and I really appreciate that, and hopefully you found this to be helpful as well. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation now, and it may be that there's someone here who has a need to respond, perhaps to become a child of God, to become a Christian, we would encourage you to take, an oppor- take the opportunity before you to do that. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you're willing to repent of your sins and confess your faith and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, then we stand ready and willing to assist you and help you in doing that. Maybe tonight, though, you are a Christian and there are some things in your life that you're struggling with, perhaps some sin that you're fighting and you're just having a hard time overcoming. Can we pray for you and help you, give you strength? Maybe you're just dealing with discouragement or some other kind of issue in your life. Can we help you? If we can, then we invite you to come forward and let us know about it while we stand and sing together.